life was finally beginning to look up for James Buggy. It had been three years since his beloved wife Catherine passed away during the birth of their first child, leaving James with a seemingly impossible challenge of keeping a steady job in the mines that would allow him to raise his infant daughter on his own. Three long years and hundreds of lonesome nights, lying awake in the bedroom of his tiny home in the Edgewood section of Shemokin, wondering how he was going to make it all work, praying for a miracle that never seemed to come. And then, in January of 1917, James's prayers were answered. The 30-year-old single father met and fell in love with a young Italian woman who also lived in a neighborhood of Edgewood. With hair as dark as the anthracite mined in the nearby hills and piercing eyes that flashed with youthful passion, 23-year-old Annie Campolo swept the lonely widower off his feet. And much to James's delight, his new flame took an immediate liking to his motherless daughter, Eleanor. <laughs> Eleanor was three years of age, and for James Buggy, the timing couldn't have been better. It had been a difficult enough task raising an infant, but James was aware that Eleanor was now at the age when she needed the guidance and love that a mother could provide best. He wanted only the best for his firstborn child, and Eleanor deserved someone who could teach her how to braid her favorite doll's hair, how to sew buttons onto her favorite blouse, and how to make the flowers in the garden blossom into fragrant, cheerful displays of color. James worked at the Burnside Colliery. He could teach his beautiful little girl none of these things, but Annie could. After a brief romance, James Buggy made Annie Campolo his wife. Four weeks later, James would realize that he had made the biggest mistake of his life. Annie, it seemed, had a fiery temper, and while quarrels among newlyweds are not uncommon, James had decided that he didn't want any disruptions in a peaceful Edgewood home he had fought so hard to maintain. His first wife, Catherine, had been a kind and gentle woman who rarely, if ever, raised her voice. James himself was known among his friends and co-workers as a kind-hearted fellow, the sort of man who would always put his faith and his family above everything else in his life. He had attended St. Edward's Catholic School as a youth and was an active member of his church. He was proud of his community and never passed up an opportunity to volunteer for a good cause. So when he heard through the grapevine that the former Miss Campolo had been less than faithful as a married woman, a terrible argument ensued. You think you can just James put his foot down. And then just dispose of me like On the night of Sunday, February 25th, he told Annie, in no uncertain terms, that he wanted her out of the house by the time he returned home from work the following day. On Monday afternoon, James returned to his home at 825 West Independence Street and found that his wife was gone. But much to his alarm, so was his young daughter. James knocked on every neighbor's door and learned that Annie was last seen shortly before 9 o'clock that morning leaving the buggy home with a little girl. Annie appeared to be in a hurry, but neighbors thought little of this occurrence, as Annie's parents lived on the same street. They had assumed Annie had taken Eleanor to the Campolo house. James returned home to wait. He washed up from his day at the colliery and made himself something to eat. But as the minutes stretched to hours, 
and there was still no sign of his wife and daughter, he began to worry. He walked to the home of Annie's parents. Annie was home. When James demanded to know the whereabouts of his daughter, Annie replied, nonchalantly, that she had taken the girl to a point just west of Edgewood Park, leaving Eleanor between two large rocks. In his frazzled state, James must have thought that his little girl was lost, wandering the wooded hillside and the banks of Furnace Run alone and bewildered. It had never occurred to him that something far more sinister might have taken place. He summoned Charles Levin, a private police officer who patrolled the grounds owned by the J.H.N.C.K. Eagle Silk Company, who owned the Eagle Silk Mill in Shimokin, and insisted upon the formation of a search party. Levin notified Michael Dormer, the constable of Cole Township, and they apprehended Annie at the Campolo home and demanded that she lead them to the place where she had left Eleanor Buggy. Annie led Levin and Dormer, who were accompanied by a handful of other concerned citizens, through the darkness into the woods west of Edgewood. The glow of the searcher's lanterns soon fell upon two large boulders. But as the men crept toward the lonesome, secluded spot, they made a baffling discovery. The little girl was not there. The search party tramped through the brush seeking clues, while Annie insisted that she had left Eleanor Buggy right where she had claimed. But after several hours, not a bit of evidence, neither a set of footprints nor a scrap of clothing could be found. Annie had some explaining to do, and it was only then she broke down and confessed. Armed with a potato knife, she had taken the three-year-old child into the woods and slashed her throat from ear to ear. Officer Levin immediately dragged Annie to the city jail. It was just after daybreak on the morning of February 27, when the barking of a dog in the distance caught the attention of James Buggy and his cousin, Michael, as they were searching the hills behind the Monroe Paving Company stone crusher on the road to Trevor. It was Michael Buggy's pet collie, which had accompanied the men into the woods before sunrise. It was the same dog that little Eleanor had frequently played with during her visits to her uncle's home. James immediately took off running, following the collie's barking along the crest of the hill. When he reached the dog, James poked around the brush, but couldn't find any sign of his beloved daughter. The sun was still rising, and in the hazy light of early dawn, he continued his desperate search, until his eye was drawn to a piece of red fabric. James knew that it was Eleanor's scarf. At around 6.30 in the morning, he spotted Eleanor's crumpled body on a pile of rocks at the foot of the mountain. James scampered down the slope, mindless of the jagged rocks, and found the body lying face down on a flat rock. He had not yet been told of the manner of Eleanor's death. Words cannot express the anguish he must have felt when he rolled over the body. <laughs> Later that morning, another group of searchers recovered the bloody potato knife from the woods, along with a locket that had belonged to the girl's stepmother. The chain was broken. This suggested that Annie had either discarded it in anger, 
or that little Eleanor had ripped it from her stepmother's neck during a frantic fight for survival. The body was taken to the Compton Funeral Parlor, where it was examined later that day by Coroner Fred P. Steck. Steck's examination revealed that Annie had made three deep slashes in the girl's throat before attempting to saw the head off at the neck. Annie made a full confession to Officer Levin, stating that she had made up her mind to kill Eleanor when James Buggy had left for work in the morning. Annie told the officer that she loved Eleanor deeply and was traumatized at the thought of never seeing her again if her husband refused to permit her back inside the house. Annie said that she knew that Eleanor was the pride of her husband's life and that taking the life of Eleanor Buggy would be the cruelest revenge. Annie told Levin that she had sharpened the knife soon after James left the house to go to work. She then dressed Eleanor and led her to the scene of her demise by a roundabout way in order to avoid arousing suspicion. After murdering the girl, Annie ran to the home of her parents on West Independence Street. She did not tell anyone what she had done. It was a textbook example of cold, calculated, premeditated murder. On Tuesday evening, February 27th, Annie Buggy was given a hearing before Justice Harrison Heslop in Shemokin and committed to the county jail in Sunbury without bail to await trial. Her trial was set to begin in May. The following morning, a funeral was held for Eleanor Buggy at St. Joseph's Church. She was buried at St. Edward's Cemetery alongside the mother who had preceded her in death Annie refused to speak while in prison, and it was murmured that insanity would be her defense. Surely, no sane person had the capacity to commit such a callous crime, or so it was whispered around town. Warden Wallace W. Barr kept a close watch on her, as it was feared that the only female among the 53 inmates at Northumberland County Prison might attempt suicide. Although every potential weapon was removed from her cell, Annie managed to inflict damage upon herself by using her own teeth. Meanwhile, a lunacy commission was formed to establish whether or not Annie was mentally fit to stand trial, at the urging of Dr. R.B. McKay. Those who knew the young woman were questioned, and friends and neighbors declared that Annie had seemed somewhat irrational in the days leading up to the murder. And yet, for every person who said that Annie had been acting strangely before the crime, there seemed to be twice as many who insisted that Annie was shamming in order to avoid paying the price for her heinous act. As the trial date grew closer, Annie Buggy's behavior became increasingly erratic. Despite being kept under close observation, Annie made three separate suicide attempts in jail. On one occasion, she was found with a stocking tied around her neck, though Annie herself was none the worse for wear. Shortly afterward, she was discovered tying an article of clothing around her neck, with the other end of the fabric tied to the end of the bed. Her third attempt at suicide came after she grabbed a knife from the hand of Toppy Raker, the jail carpet boss, with the intention of stabbing herself. 
While some prison factories manufactured license plates, the Northumberland County prison manufactured rugs and carpets. Despite the dramatic act, Annie was uninjured. Whether Annie Buggy was pretending to be insane or not, her behavior convinced the Lunacy Commission that she was unfit to stand trial. On May 15th, she was transferred to Danville State Hospital, only to be pronounced cured and released less than two years later. The former Annie Campolo would never face a jury for partially beheading a three-year-old child in a fit of jealous rage. Upon her release from Danville State Hospital in March of 1919, she returned to Shimokin, whose residents had largely forgotten about what she had done. But James Buggy did not forget. Though mostly a symbolic gesture, as soon as Annie was released from the mental hospital, he filed a petition for a complete and absolute divorce. Perhaps because of her reputation, Annie never remarried, and she resided in the area for the remainder of her life, keeping a low profile. The date of her death is unclear. As for James Buggy, he lived out the remainder of his life in the same house at 825 West Independence Street in Shimokin, succumbing from a lingering illness in April of 1962. He remained an upstanding citizen to the end, serving on the Coal Township Board of Education and holding membership in the Holy Name Society of St. Joseph's Church for several decades. He rose to the position of foreman at the Burnside Colliery, a position he held for 32 years. What makes the story of this long-forgotten 1917 murder even more remarkable are the uncanny and downright eerie parallels and coincidences. For instance, Annie Campolo's mother was also named Annie, and census records from 1930 show that this Annie Campolo, now 60 years of age and widowed, had adopted a nine-year-old girl. Her name was Eleanor. Stranger still is the murder of a Shimokan infant, a four-month-old girl named Joanna, who was strangled to death by her mother on February 5, 1954. The mother who strangled her daughter was also committed to Danville State Hospital. Her name? Eleanor Buggy. This murder was committed at 1529 West Walnut Street in the Edgewood section of the city just a few blocks from where the lifeless body of three-year-old Eleanor Buggy had been discovered 27 years earlier. If you enjoyed this podcast, look for my latest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 2, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart.com, or through the Sunbury Press website at www.sunburypressstore.com. The Pennsylvania Oddities Podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Find the Pennsylvania Oddities Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite programs. New episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month.